Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Go with me this morning. We're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. In just a few moments, I'm going to take this text and read it. Last week in our Doing Life Together series, we were talking about the importance of the mission. We're here for a purpose, and our purpose is a mission that God has called us for. I shared a few of the points, and I want to reiterate those points before I go on to today. Number one, your mission is a continuation of Jesus' mission on earth. We can do it. You can do it. I can do it individually. You can do it. I've got to keep saying that. You can do it. You can do it. It's your mission. You're the continuation of Jesus' mission. Young, old, teenagers, children, seniors, whoever you are, your mission as a follower of Jesus is to carry that mission into this world and to talk about it and to live it out. Number two, your mission is a wonderful privilege. It's not simply an obligation. And sometimes we get to thinking, well, I have to. You know, there he goes. He's telling me I got to do this again. It's a privilege to represent the greatest one who has ever lived on this earth. It's a privilege. Number three, it has eternal significance. I mean, what else else can you and I do that lasts forever? But this, the mission of sharing about Christ, sharing his love for others. It's eternal, and it starts right now. Number four, your mission gives your life meaning. Someone said, I quoted last week, the best use of life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. Yeah. And number five, God's timetable for history's conclusion is connected to the completion of our commission. I mentioned last week, Billy Graham says it's called commission, not suggestion. And so, The end of the timetable, the end times, the coming of our Lord is directly linked to us fulfilling this mission. Well, that just kind of gets me excited to be about the task of fulfilling the mission. I I said that, so what is the mission? What, What do we do? What's the message? Well, the message has four parts. Very simply, last week I said, it's your testimony. That's sharing your story. Take time to talk about your story. We shared a little bit about that. If you weren't with us last week, go back. It's on our website, auroracornerstone.ca. You can go in and you can find that. But secondly, life lessons. Your message is about your life lessons. The things that you had financial problems. Maybe you experienced a death in the family. Maybe you experienced some suffering. Whatever it is, your life's lessons now become the lessons that you share. What did you learn from them? Don't waste them. Number three, your godly passions. Some of you have godly passion for social justice. Some have godly passions for the children of this generation. Some have a godly passion for the maybe the single parents who are raising a family. Whatever your godly passion, don't just let that slip away. That's there for a reason. Not everybody has to share that passion, but you need to share your passion. And the good news is the message that Jesus Jesus saves. First Peter chapter 3, and invite you to go there, verse 13, follow along with me. 
Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I want you to see again verse 5, or verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have, and do this with gentleness and respect. Father in heaven, we just ask, open our hearts this morning to what you want to say to us in these next few minutes. We just settle ourselves. We speak to our soul. Soul, be attentive. May these words come to life in our hearts today, we pray in your name. Amen. Here's a picture I'm putting up in front of you. Do you see the picture? I'm going to ask you the question, who do you think this is? Born 1829, died 1912. Who do you think it is? We've got, have you got some guesses? Go ahead. Who do you think? No, no, no. Those of you who said Fidel Castro, no. It's not Fidel Castro. Anybody else? No, the, those who are Duck Dynasty lovers, it's not Phil Robertson. No. Okay, I'm going to give you some hints. Stay with me. I'm going to give you some hints. Here are some quotes from this person. Number one, in answer to your iniquity, this, this is the person quoting, in answer to your iniquity, I consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost. Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Can you guess? Albert. Let me give you another quote. The greatness of a man's power is in the measure of his surrender. I'm going to keep quoting here until you get this. Okay, next quote. We must wake ourselves up or somebody else will take our place and bear our cross and thereby rob us of our crown. Okay, let's try this one. To get a man soundly saved, it is not enough to put him on a pair of new breeches, to give him regular work or even to give him a university education. These things are all outside a man. And if the inside remains unchanged, you have wasted your labor. You must in some way or other graft upon the man's nature, a new nature, which has in it the element of the divine. Has that helped anybody here? Okay, let's try this one. A number of you are going to get it on this one. Those who are millennials or older, okay, I'm expecting some good results out of this one. Here we go. A song written by this person. Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banners go. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Okay, did you get it? 
Okay. William Booth is the right answer. William Booth was a British Methodist preacher. He's the founder of the Salvation Army and became its first general. His father was wealthy by standards of the time. In Booth's childhood, as a result of his father's bad investments, the family descended into poverty, and Williams Booth would eventually become an alcoholic. Let me just give you, I'm giving you a bit of a snapshot of this man because I want to talk about him. I'm going to show you his vision in just a moment. This past week, a friend of mine, a colleague here in Aurora, Major Brian Bishop, pastor of the Northridge Community Church, the Salvation Army Church here in Aurora, we were talking and I said, hey, Brian, I'm going to talk about your founder. Now, of course, our founder is Jesus Christ, but the founder of their denomination, William Booth. And so we got talking about him, and, and, and I was saying, hey, I'm going to talk about him today, and, and so let's do that. Let me give you a little bit of information, because he's an amazing pioneer, and I think we need to honor the things that stirred his heart. Let me continue on. So Booth's father was wealthy, but he lost it, and he's an alcoholic. Let's pick it up, 1842. His father, Samuel Booth, was bankrupt. He could no longer afford to send William Booth to school, who's 13 years old. So he took him out of school and apprenticed him as a pawnbroker. Samuel would die the same year. Two years into his apprenticeship, Booth was converted to salvation. Glorious conversion. April the 10th, 1852, it was William Booth's 23rd birthday. He left pawnbroking and became a full-time preacher. But they put him, his denomination put him into a pastorate and to care for a congregation, to nurture a congregation, and he was so unhappy. The annual conference, they kept wanting and reassigning him to a pastor. He just wanted to go out where people were instead of them coming to where he was so he could tell them about Jesus. He wanted to go to the people who wouldn't come. In 1865, Booth was in the east end of London preaching to crowds of people on the streets outside a place called the Blind Beggar's Public House. Some missionaries heard him speaking. They were so impressed. They invited him to lead a series of meetings that they were holding in a large tent. The tent was set up, an old Quaker burial site on Mile and Waste in Whitechapel. The first of those meetings were held July the 2nd, 1865. The poor, the desolate of London's East End, came and heard the good news of Jesus from William Booth. Booth realized that was his destiny. His destiny was to share the good news of Jesus Christ to all who would hear. His wife, Catherine, opened the Christian Revival Society. Him and his wife opened the Christian Revival Society, East End of London, where they held meetings Sundays and every night of the week. They offered repentance, salvation, and here's the thing, and Chris, he calls it this, Christian ethics to the poor and most needy. In other words, he reached out to care for the poor and most needy. It included the alcoholics, the criminals, the prostitutes. The Christian Revival Center was later renamed the Christian Mission. Slowly but surely, the Christian Mission began to grow. But the work was difficult. Catherine 
His wife would later say that there were as many nights Booth would stumble home late into the night, haggard, fatigued. Often his clothes were torn and bloodied with bandages that swathed his heads where his head where stones had struck him. Apparently during many of the meetings in that old warehouse, people would throw stones at him. Others would throw fireworks in through the window to disrupt the meetings. He proposed a strategy, though, a strategy of presentation of the Christian gospel. It's sharing the message of Jesus. It's talking and the work ethic help solve people's problems. He says that if the state fails to meet its social obligations, it will be the task of each Christian to step into the breach. However, Booth was not departing from his spiritual convictions to set up a society. His ultimate aim, whatever it takes, get people saved. People need to be rescued. People need the Lord. Booth, and, and, and actually uh, Pastor Brian brought this up, about how Booth's vision, he had a vision. It really gave direction to his entire life's mission. And his vision had to do with something he received, he felt was from the Lord. And I want to share an introduction. Here it is from Booth. He said, I have no intention to depart in the smallest degree from my main principles on which I have acted in the past. My only hope for the permanent deliverance of mankind from misery, either in this world or in the next, is the regeneration or making of individuals by the power of the Holy Ghost through Jesus Christ. But in providing for the relief of temporary misery, I reckon that I am only making it easy where it is now difficult, possible, where it is now all but impossible for men and women to find their way to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've often heard it said that people say they don't want to hear how much you say you care until they see how much you care. And we know that in the last part of Booth's life, we have a picture here of 83 years of age. He would die. Three day he lie in state at Clampton Congress Hall, 190,000 people filed past his casket. But let's go to the vision. Let's go to the vision now. Let's what, what the vision really was. Let's go to that. I had a vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. In that ocean, I thought I saw multitudes of poor human beings plunging and floating and shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And out of this dark, angry ocean, I saw a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the stormy seas. And all around the base of the rock, I saw a vast platform and on this platform I saw with delight a number of the poor wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that some of those who were already safe on the platform were fervently helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach safety. But something puzzled me. Although they had all been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them. And what was equally strange and perplexing to me was that most of these people did not seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their eyes. 
But then I saw something wonderful. I saw a great being from above come straight from his palace, right through the dark clouds. And he leapt right into the raging sea among the drowning people. And there I saw him toiling to rescue them until the sweat of his great anguish ran down in blood. And he was continually crying to those already rescued, to those whom he had helped with his own bleeding hands, to come and help him in the painful and laborious task of saving the lost. But the strangest thing of all was that those on the platform to whom he called were so taken up with their trades and professions and money saving and pleasures and families and community and gatherings and religions and arguments about it that they did not respond to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being who had himself by his spirit gone down into the sea. And so the multitude went on struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I saw something that seemed stranger than anything that had happened before in this very strange vision. Those whom this wonderful being cried out to to come and help him in his difficult task were always praying and crying to him to come to them. Some wanted him to come and stay with them and spend his time and strength in making them happier. Others wanted him to come and take away various doubts and misgivings they had concerning the truth of some letters which he had written them. Others wanted him to come and make them feel more secure on the rock, so secure that they would be totally sure they would never slip off again. They used to meet and get as close to the rock as they could, and looking towards the mainland where they thought the great being was, they would cry out, Come to us, come and help us. But all this time, he was down among the poor drowning creatures, crying to them in a hoarse voice, Come to me, come and help me. And then I understood it all. It was plain enough. That sea was the ocean of life, the sea of real, actual human existence. Those multitudes of people struggling in the stormy sea were the billions of sinners from every race, language, and nation. That great sheltering rock was Calvary, the place of the cross. And the people on it were those who had been rescued from sin and hell and who professed to be followers of Jesus Christ. That mighty being who called to them from the tempest was the Son of God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is still struggling to save the dying multitudes about us from this terrible doom of damnation, and whose voice can be heard above the music and machinery and noise of life, calling on the rescued to come and help him save the world. My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the waters. You are on the rock. Jesus is in the dark sea, calling on you to come and help him. Will you go? Okay, so what a compelling vision. A compelling vision of a man whose heart was stirred by uh, something that just transported him beyond what he was doing to having to make a difference. 
And I remember when I went through that vision and I, I heard his vision, I read his vision. I thought, you know, I, I feel the same. I don't know if I felt it with such gravity that he had, but I feel the vision. Oh God, we are living at a moment where there's such a need, such a need to make that our mission right now, that today we, have a di- we can make a difference. General Booth believed the fundamental need of, man, of mankind is knowing someone cares. Think about that for a second. And, and really that's what today, people need to know someone cares. Think about a newborn baby, for instance. A newborn baby needs to know someone cares. Uh, it's not demonstrated simply because you tell them, I care, I care, I care, I care. No, a, ne- a newborn baby needs more than you to tell them that you care. A newborn baby, what? They, they need you to, do, to feed them. They need you to change their diaper. They need you to, uh, to pick them up and talk to them and, and laugh with them. You have to do more than simply tell them if they're to get the, the, the truth that you really do care. Now, let's translate that to adults. Adults, we need to know someone cares. And this is demonstrated not by just more talking, not by criticism, but by taking the time, yes, talk, listen, spend time with, and demonstrate your care. Being a follower of Jesus is about balancing our worship before God with caring for those around us. I'm going to say that again. Being a follower of Jesus is that balance of being a worshiper that's getting his teaching, studying the Bible, going to church, being with Christians, balances that with going out where that's not happening, but just demonstrating care by helping people who are just struggling. It's the balance. Someone told me, they said, if you want to experience God's intimacy, if you want to experience the closeness of his presence, then you need to go where he is. And where he is, is near the brokenhearted and lost. That requires me to resist comfortableness, resist self-satisfaction, resist being a consumer. In other words, it's about me and become a contributor. I'm going to now give. What would it look like if all the churches around the world When people gather together, they didn't come simply to get, but actually that's at the back of the list, that when they come, they come looking for opportunities. How can they help someone? you imagine how radically different gatherings would be? Our mission is to be a radical giver. Step to the mission every day where we, like Isaiah would say, Isaiah in chapter 6, he would say, hear my Lord. You don't have to look any further. I'll go. I'm going to come. I'm going to enter into my day to day with expectation to touch somebody and to help someone. To pre-commit your day to demonstrate, I care. We need to look for it. We need to expect it. It won't just come and blindside. Naturally speaking, we tend to be selfish. Naturally speaking, we will simply self-consume. This is a spiritual rebirth where when God 
gives you and demonstrates his love for you, out of that, you are now looking for ways to demonstrate that to others. Maybe it's the barbecue over the fence, maybe this afternoon. Maybe it's at the cottage or by a campfire. Maybe it's when you're camping at your, with your trailer. Maybe it's at the gatehouse or, or where kids are getting together doing stuff, whatever it might be. Expect God to use you. One of my favorite songs came out a few years ago. In the song, it goes like this. I see a generation rising up to take their place with selfless love, with selfless faith, with selfless faith. I see a near revival stirring as we pray and seek. We're on our knees. We're on our knees. And then the chorus, heal my heart and make it clean. Open up my eyes to the things unclean. Show me how to love like you've loved me. Break my heart with what breaks yours. Romans chapter 10 from the Message Bible. I want to close with this scripture. From the Message Bible, Romans 10, 14 says, but how can people call for help if they don't know who to trust? And how can they know who to trust if they haven't heard of the one who can be trusted? And how can they hear if nobody tells them? And how is anyone going to tell them unless someone is sent to do it? That's why the scripture exclaims, a sight to take your breath away, grand possessions of people telling all the good things of God. But not everybody is ready for this, ready to see and hear and act. Isaiah asked, but we all ask at one time or another, does anyone care, God? Is anyone listening and believing a word of it? The point is, before you trust, you have to listen. But unless Christ's word is preached, there's nothing to listen to. I'm going to encourage you today, this Mother's Day, that we would be active in the mission of caring, the mission of demonstrating we care. I know we're in right now of this moment. You know, here we are. We are uh, 10.53 Sunday morning right now. I get that. In on a bunch of Zoomanites and that we are restricted. But we still have contacts. There are still people around us. And Lord willing, we will move back into somewhat normalcy of life. Demonstrate I care. So that song, Break My Heart, Lord, with what breaks yours. May that compel us to be those people to care. I want to pray for you. I want to pray, oh God, open up our hearts to love as you've loved us. So Father, I thank you. The story around William Booth is an inspiration. A man who went through a lot of life reversals to be pawned off as a pawnbroker to be thought to be maybe at best he could be a pastor. But he knew that in his heart, he was to go where the lost were, who were suffering because they weren't going to hear the message unless he went to them and demonstrated he cared. Lord, show us, the people around us, that we care for them. Help us, God, to whether it's calling them, whether it's visiting them, whether it's coming along to meet a need, whether it's... Uh, uh, caring by helping with their children. 
God, whatever it might be, God, demonstrate through us that you care. We pray in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.